Hello, my name is Yvonne Marzouk, and my favorite thing is writing. Welcome to the Finding Favorites podcast, where we explore your favorite things without using an algorithm. Here's your host, Leah Jones. Hello, and welcome to Finding Favorites. I'm your host, Leah Jones, and this is the podcast where we learn about people's favorite things and get recommendations without using an algorithm. It's my favorite time of the year, and that time of year is paperback books and repeat guests. And I'm so excited to have the author of The Prophetess, Yvonne Marzouk, back on the podcast. Yvonne, how are you doing? Thanks so much for having me, Leah. It's been a little bit of a challenging time, but I'm grateful to be here with you. To frame this interview in time and place, it's Monday, October 30th. This will come out in November when, God willing, the hostages have been returned and there is a ceasefire and the world feels less unsteady than it is today. But we're still in the thick of a really horrible time. Yes. But one of the... There are no silver linings, just like there were no silver linings to COVID. But in the last few weeks, I have had moments where I've reconnected with my friends from the ROI community and from the Jewish community that I've met through Twitter and through traveling to Israel. I had a beer with Joel Haber in Penn Station last week. I don't know if you know him, but he landed from Israel. I was leaving New York. We met up in Penn Station. I ran into the rapper Kosha Dills, Rami at uh, the, the New York Bagel Festival, which I knew I would run into someone I knew. And if I'd thought about it for even a second, I knew it would have been Kosha Dills. <laughs> so it's really meaningful to get to sit down with you tonight because you are one of the people I met on my first, on my second trip to Israel, but like my first ROI experience. Yeah, you know, I really continue to feel like those ROI experiences are just such special kind of snapshots in time for me in terms of the Mm -hmm. extraordinary people that I met and the incredible experiences. And I'm so happy to to get to be with you. I I can definitely count you as one of the people I'm super grateful to have met through that process. So since the last time we met, or the last time we podcasted together, the prophetess is now, am I, am I, I'm putting the accent on the wrong syllable, aren't I? How do you say it? I would say the prophetess. Okay. You did an unboxing recently of the ARCs, the review copies of your paperback. So tell me about the timeline to the paperback coming out or anything that might be different about this edition or exciting things that you have planned to celebrate the launch. Yeah. So just to kind of, for those who may not have heard the original podcast, I'll just refresh your memory. The Prophetess is a story of a of a 17-year-old girl who's unexpectedly called to join the secret community of Jewish prophets. A girl who is just a kind of regular American teenager who all of a sudden starts having visions. And fundamentally, it's a story about what happens when there's a calling that comes to you that feels bigger than you. Mm -hmm. How do you grow into a calling that feels like this isn't me? How could I possibly do this? And how could I actually become the person that I'm called to be? And I tend to call that. And in the book, it's all about growing into your gifts. Mm -hmm. She is a person with enormous gifts and needs to grow into them. And I like to say that, I mean, I really believe that everyone has gifts that they're growing into and that 
we all still have gifts to grow into no matter what we've achieved so far in our lives. Mm -hmm. Like part of being alive is that there's still something we're growing into and how can we maximize that to make a meaningful difference in the world? I think that's part of our Jewish journey, but I think that it's definitely applicable to, to everyone. So that's what the story is about. And it came out in 2019, shortly before COVID in October, 2019. And I was able to do some great things, do podcasts, to be, to be with you to do a a whole tour. And I've been so excited by the people who told me that the book changed their lives. And I'm also so excited that after four years, the book is finally coming out in paperback. Mm -hmm. That was always my wish. And it's got this beautiful cover that I'm so excited about. It has a girl wandering in those, it's towards the sun. And I think it just really emphasizes and just underlines what the story is really all about mm-hmm. by being hardcover is available at the low, low price of $15, which I'm really excited about too. Yeah. So that's the news about the prophetess that I'm really excited to share. Outstanding. And people can pre-order it now on Amazon. Yes. And you're making some decisions about also doing a charitable contribution. And we'll put the final decision in the show notes about how the pre-orders will link to a charitable contribution. Yeah. So my publisher and I have both committed to making a charitable contribution for every book pre-ordered by November 14th. And more details about that we can include in the show notes. Great. So I'm curious, the book came out in October 2019, which feels like a whole lifetime ago, which I guess for like a kid would be like all of high school. Yeah. Or maybe the book is a senior now if it was a freshman. In 2019? (laughs) Yeah. What gifts, what have you grown into over these last few years? Do you feel like there's an area in your own life where you've grown with this book out in the world? Yeah, that's such a great question, definitely. And I think one of the most important things that I learned in this process is how to be out front with a book. I think mm-hmm. that one of the things I discovered about myself is that I had this tendency to like create products and then hide behind them. Like here, look at the book. Don't look at me. Right. Look at the organization. Don't look at me. Right. Like, I over identify with the book or with the thing that I was doing. And then because I kind of had some, you know, deep <laughs> sense or concern that people wouldn't really be interested in me. Mm-hmm. And I really had to work through that for myself. And I think that's one of the most important things that I've worked through over the last couple of years is being willing to just say what is there for me to say and be willing to be the person who's there to teach what I'm here to teach. And the book teaches those things too. And to be able to share what I believe is important at the same time as offering the book as a really great resource to support people in those same things. Yeah. And that out to I you know learned and taught during this time much more about women's empowerment about what it means to grow into our gifts about Jewish mysticism which the book is grounded in but I've had the opportunity to learn a lot more and to teach mm-hmm. a lot more and to just be willing to be out there being who I am and then also offering the book as part of what I offer has been a transition for me that's been really great and I feel like I've learned a lot about myself as a speaker, as a teacher, as a writer during this time. You know, when you come out with your first book, you don't have any idea how to sell it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have any idea what they're going to ask of you. Right. And uh, I really had so much opportunity during this time to learn that and to become more comfortable with all that. Right. Or how much 
not that you were not a person with technical skills before, but having so much of it during kind of peak COVID, having to really learn how to like manage Zoom events and and do like virtual tours where maybe it had originally maybe like you were going to spend Shabbaton with different communities of having to come in maybe on a Sunday and do a Zoom versus getting to spend like a full weekend with a community. It was just a completely I'm so I'm so happy that you got a few months of normal launch before COVID hit. Yeah. And I think I mean, it's interesting, like the whole world has changed so much Mm -hmm. because of COVID and virtual events are so much more of a a normal thing. It definitely was not what I was expecting when the book came out originally. I certainly had to learn Zoom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I partly had to learn it because my kids were taking virtual school on it. You know, that was like my first experience with Zoom in a real immediate way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Getting to learn all those things certainly creates flexibility for the kinds of events that you can do. And during Elul, which seems like a hundred years ago, but was really just like last month, I organized a class, like my first class ever that I led all by myself that I ran on Zoom. I had my own Zoom account and I invited people to come and I taught about the heroine's journey and how, you know, women can grow into their gifts. And I did six sessions. And that's something that I never would have considered doing before the book came out, but also not anything that I would have ever considered doing before COVID that you could just kind of like plan a class and organize it yourself on Zoom and just, you know, through all the social media channels, invite people to come. And that was also a huge growing experience for me. And I learned so much and I was so grateful to be able to do it. But yeah, I think that all of the technology has really changed our way of communicating with each other. And also I've learned that how much more meaningful it is when people are there in the room. And so like, I just did a little class where like, I invited like a couple of people in my neighborhood to come in person, you know, because it it really does make a difference to have even one person in the room just changes the feeling. And it's just so much more, it just enriches the experience for me. Yeah. And hopefully for them too. That's great. I'm also curious. I feel like when we were touching base about you coming back to the podcast, it also seems like you've shifted the audience you're focusing on for the book, that you've realized that it's grownups, it's women that are really rocking the book and and, and you had intended it to be a young adult book. Well, so actually, no? <laughs> my publisher decided it was a young adult book. Ah, uh, um, okay. I, I learned about myself, like, I I don't write, I'm better off writing what's in my heart and then yeah. have someone else decide who it's for than trying to, I can overthink, like, mm-hmm. the, the who I'm talking to, mm-hmm. and that kind of kills some of my ability to write. So I, I was writing it kind of for myself and people like me. And right. I was, you know, when I started writing the book, I was actually very young and now I'm not quite so young, but, you know, h- however old I was, was who it was for. Sure. And my publisher, you know, recommended it as a young adult book and it does work as a young adult book. It certainly does. Mm-hmm. There have been teenage girls who really liked it and who got a lot of, a lot out of it. But also I kept like coming across like, 40-year-old women, 60-year-old women who said, like, mm-hmm. oh, so spoke to my heart. And, like, I don't know what's wrong with me. It's a young adult book. <laughs> but <laughs> it spoke to my heart. So whatever that means. And I and I felt <laughs> I wanted to let them understand, like, because I never wrote it as a young adult book. That was never my intention. Right. So the fact that it was speaking to them is not weird at all. Yeah. The fact that it's about a 17-year-old was never intended to kind of limit it to people within that scope. 
like The Alchemist, which is like one of my favorite books, is also actually about a young boy, oh. but it's not intended in any no, way. No, it's not a children. I yeah. That's funny. I think if, because I've read it, I've maybe only read it once. I probably would have said it was a bit, if like in a trivia competition, I would have said it was about a middle-aged person. Oh, totally not. I right? mean, he's, he's right. No, I just read it recently and it's about like yeah. a young person. And I think there are a number of books like that, like these, like wisdom literature, like it, it kind of doesn't matter how old the character is, because the right. important thing is like what the character is learning in the way. Right. Like the little prince. Right. Right. Yeah. So these kinds of stories can speak to people at whatever stage of life they're in. And mm-hmm. especially a story about a 17 year old, like we all kind of have a 17 year old still living inside us. I feel like I certainly do have that sort of part of me still with me. And there are still parts of me that are growing the way that a person does when they're like kind of in that critical moment in their life. So I think I want to say that it's still appropriate for young adults, but it's, I think in this new launch, we're looking to let especially women know that this book is intended for them too, that if mm-hmm. it speaks to them, that they're, they, they don't think that they're, you know, necessarily reading young adult books, but they like these kinds of magical realism journeys, you know, inspirational fiction kind of thing. They might really love this story. Yeah. Outstanding. So it'll ship on November 14th. People can pre-order on Amazon. They'll get this. It may be that this is, kind of what it looks like when I look out my window right now. But I love the fall colors on the new cover. It's really stunning. Thank you. I didn't know this when, like, <laughs> well, this is another thing that I learned. People really judge a book by its cover. They do. And um, so I feel like this cover really helps, I think, to fully evoke what's inside. Well, Yvonne, the paperback is what brings us back together today, but we're also here to talk about your favorite thing, one of your favorite things. Yes. So what is it we're going to chat about tonight? So I decided, I thought about it a lot, and I thought about all the things that I do and all the things I wish that I could do in my non-existent spare time. Mm -hmm. But the thing that is really my favorite is writing. Yeah. Writing in a way that, (laughs) it's funny. When you've written for as long as I have, like, when you write something, people are like, oh, you're a good writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, and it's a nice compliment, but I actually am at, like, now I don't, that's nice, but I'll, all I really care about is that my writing is touching you, mm-hmm. is helping learn something, is making you think about something in a different way, or bringing some wisdom into the world and into your life. And that's really what my writing is for. And that doesn't happen every time that I sit down at the computer, but that is what it's my writing is for. And that makes writing my favorite thing. Yeah. What does your current writing practice look like? (laughs) Do you have a current writing practice? Do you aspire to have a writing practice? You know, it's like maybe my current writing practice is that there's something that I know I need to write and I put it off until as like the very, very last possible minute. Yeah. And I do everything else first and then I force myself to sit down and write it. 
And then it's, you know, feels like it's not coming together and that's frustrating. And then all of a sudden I have this sudden realization of how to make it work. And then I try and get it published. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that a lot recently in relationship to this situation with Israel. And I had an article recently published in the Jewish News Syndicate called What Sending My Son to Israel Has Taught Me About Love. Mm. That was maybe an example of the kind of story that I like had to step away from and step back to and had to put off. And it's funny how I think that many writers experience that like writing is like the thing that you put off. Mm -hmm. And yet when you finally do it and you finally figure out how to tell a story that you want to tell, it's just, it's such a beautiful experience. Yeah. I was definitely at 430 on Friday, still getting edits for a Devar I was giving at 630. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like maybe writers are always in the category of procrastinators. Right. <laughs> like maybe those things come together. Deadlines are great editors. <laughs> <laughs> the, the key is getting the editors to be able to work with you at that late hour. I'm right. You were well, I mean, editor slash best friend, you know helped he typed out an email and then he called me to make sure like the email landed well (laughs) (laughs) that's a good editor that's a good yeah it's a really good editor because so the prophetess you worked on off and on over the course of 15 to 20 years right from grad school or undergrad From from undergrad yeah from undergrad up to publication and you eventually like broke out the scenes and you had your Excel spreadsheet and you would pop in and pop out. So, but what is life, what is writing life look like for you with the big novel, the first novel out in the world? So you're writing beautiful essays for publication. Are there other novels like scratching at, you know, like trying to get out? Are there bigger projects or are you focused on the marketing and smaller in length projects? You know, it's hard. I I think one of the things about having worked on a book for 20 years is that when you reach the end of that, like the what comes next has been a really challenging conversation for me. And it's not because I don't know what I want to write about, but because mm-hmm. I have so many different things that I want to write mm-hmm. and so little time in which to write them. Yes. And especially because, so I have an almost full-time job and I have kids and lots of other things going on. And then I'm trying to kind of promote and be available to share wisdom related to the prophetess. So I'm finding it challenging to kind of narrow down. But what I realized actually just very recently is that one of the things that stops me from writing is picturing who's going to read it. And then mm-hmm. all the things that they won't like about it or all the challenges that might come up for it or will anyone want it? Right. And like, nobody's going to buy that. And it's interesting, like I, none of that was there for me when I was writing The Prophetess because I had no idea how it goes. Right. But now that I've been through that and I've seen how it goes and how it's like, is there a market for that? And I think just recently I've come to the conclusion that I just have to pretend that I don't care. Right. The only way to really write is to say what's on my heart. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when it's finished, you know, convince somebody that they need it. 
because by the time it's finished, then I'll be sure that it's a contribution. And like, whereas like just if I describe the prophetess to someone in a paragraph, they probably would like before it was written. Right. Like, you know, I I wouldn't even know how to describe it the way that I did after it was finished. So I think I just need to, once this, you know, kind of exciting phase around the prophetess launch comes out, I think the key is to just choose something and start. Yeah. Like just my best guess and not care about whether it's going to you know, whether at the first glance, it feels like it's marketable. Mm -hmm. So let's time travel. When you think back in your life as a writer, do you remember your first story? Like when did you say I'm a writer? Like I, this is what I love to do a first poem or a first story in in elementary school that, yeah, you're nodding your head. I'm going to stop asking. (laughs) (laughs) So I was in like first grade, I had a haiku that was published in the like school newsletter. Okay. And that was very exciting. <laughs> and actually my dad, I think, um, cut it out and put it in a little frame on my desk <laughs> this haiku, to, to kind of remind me that I was a writer. But really what happened was that in fifth grade, I had the opportunity to write a story as a kind of special end of year project. Mm-hmm. And I wrote, I had the opportunity to basically write something. And because it was, I was in fifth grade, it had to be five pages long. Okay. And I chose to write a story. And that was the first time I ever wrote an actual story. And I wrote it in a, on notebook paper, like college ruled notebook paper. And I wrote it like in my little fifth grade handwriting. Mm-hmm. And I kind of poured my heart out into this story. I cannot remember what it's about. I think there were twins involved. It was a big <laughs> Valley High. Yeah. Or I guess it was probably even like Sweet Valley Twins that I was reading at the time. And I, when I shared it with the teacher who was like kind of my advisor for this project, she wrote, her name was Joan Cohen. And she was the kind of teacher that everyone should have. Yeah. And she wrote in the margins, like Judy Bloom, look out. <laughs> and of course, I was like a big fan of Judy Bloom. Of course. And it just was like such a like something to hold on to that one day I could actually be an author mm-hmm. and that I could keep like the story itself. I don't know if it was any good, but it came from that same place where stories come from now, where yeah. you get into this imaginative place and you're in this spot where you just feel like you it's a story you got to tell. And that it was so enriching to have that kind of positive feedback. And so like my shout out is to teachers who see kids with big dreams and encourage them in those big dreams. Cause yeah. that's really made a big difference for me. Oh, I love that. Cause you said before we hit record that you recently were a guest speaker for a fourth grade class about writing. Yeah, <laughs> that was so fun. And that they were asking you questions about like point of view. Which to me seems, I don't know if a room of adults would think to ask that. So when you're going in to talk to fourth grade, tell me about it. Right. Well, so what happened was the teacher had asked, I volunteered to to share this, you know, to share my writing journey. And the teacher was excited to take advantage of that because she was teaching kind of the writing process, writing, editing, publishing to Mm -hmm. the kids. So here I am like a really good test case. Yeah. And, And it was a beautiful group of children. And one of the things that the teacher asked me to focus on was the revision process because fourth graders maybe don't really love to write something and then write it again and write it again. 
when I was that age too. I recall um, that at my current age. Yes. <laughs> so right now, and actually I'm kind of like an editing geek and I could edit things like ad infinitum. Mm. So like I'm not, so I actually don't mind it now at all, but at the time, yes. And so she asked me to explain like, especially, you know, what's that like to have to kind of write a book a whole bunch of different times before it's published. And right. the book that finally got published was like my eighth draft. And so I explained like how like over these 20 years, I was continually improving on like an original idea that I had. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to them about some of the things that changed in that process of reworking the book. And one of the things that changed was point of view. And the kids actually had been learning about that, I think, in third and fourth grade. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily mastered the sure. concept. But it was a great opportunity to talk it through with them to like help them kind of remember like first person and third person. And they were actually like some of the kids were really strong readers and they were very excited to tell me about different books that they had read and about the different perspectives that books take. And it was really it was cool for me to kind of geek out with them about some of the ways that authors make decisions. Mm -hmm. One of the kids said to me, oh, I just read this book that had like it was in first person, but it kept switching back and forth from different points of view. Like, so one character's first person and then another character's. Mm -hmm. And it, that moment for me was like a moment where I was like, wow, I love this. It was so exciting to be engaging with them and helping them understand. And I said, like, can you understand what kind of problem the writer was solving by choosing to do it that way? Mm -hmm. And I think people don't always think about that. But, you know, when you are right, choosing a point of view, you have to you're solving a problem. You right. have to decide, like, to what extent do I want to be very close to the character, like so close that you're kind of inside their head? To what extent do I want other people in the story to be able, you know, you don't understand what their point, what their perspective is. Right. And a, somebody, a, an author who chooses to do first person but switches back and forth is try like the solving the problem of they want you to be very close to the characters but they also want you to see it from different points of view right the only way to do that i was explaining to them is to do like third person omniscient but then you're very very far away from the character so it's just lovely to be able to talk to people about how books are constructed and, and why authors make decisions that they do yeah based on some things i've learned do you remember any of the books that they said that they're I, like, what are fourth graders reading today? Did they, do you remember any of the titles? I mean, they talked about Harry Potter. Sure. <laughs> Harry, of course came up. No, I mean, I think that that was the, the one that I remember the best. I think mm -hmm. like I, I happen to have a fourth grader who is an avid reader and I couldn't even name for you the number of books because they just sort of fly through these short little books. Yep. All right. So you did a, a five pager about twins. <laughs> and then did you in high school go the journalism route? Like did the yearbook or the school newspaper get you or did you write? Were you doing creative writing? Like kind of what was your writer's path? Yeah, I was always doing creative writing. And oh, real life is boring and very <laughs> <sad>. <laughs> Like speaking right now real life is really upsetting yeah so no when I was in high school I was part of like a literary like a creative writing club mm -hmm. so I wrote like really dramatic like short short fiction and like poems yeah. and stuff 
and from there, there was a literary magazine in my high school and I like was actively participating in that process and eventually the editor of the literary magazine. There were some really good things written in that. Like, I mean, I remember I once I had like a quote book and I was keeping quotes of all different kinds and I wrote some of the like there was a poem that someone wrote in the literary magazine that I liked enough that I copied it into my quote book because I thought it was mm. cool. I think that teens like, you know, their writing is not always polished, but it's so straight from the heart. I, I got the chance yeah. to like be a little bit involved in the J girls writing project yeah. and to like review their collection of, they had like a collection of all the different writings from a bunch of the teens who were part of that. And I just was so touched by the way that those girls like just brought forth their heart and like really shared what it's like for them. I think that there's so much power in that kind of thing. Yeah. Nice. And then off to college where we know this is where the prophetess begins. But what in college did you, you stayed on the creative writing literary journal path or? I did. I mean, I majored in writing in college with a concentration in fiction. Wow. And I ended up later picking up a minor in religious studies because I'm also a geek for religious studies. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I wanted to write fiction. And I think that it was often said to me <laughs> that that was not a marketable <laughs> career path. <laughs> and, you know, as I got a little bit older, I ended up taking classes in science writing and other kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I was at Johns Hopkins and they didn't actually have a strong journalism program. So I was never really part of that. But I went to like, I did like an internship in the School of Public Health and like kind of mm-hmm. worked on their newsletters and stuff like that. And and started to kind of understand ways that writing can be used professionally. And for anyone out there who is like considering a career in writing, I would like to convey that one can have a very good career in writing in an area that you want to make a difference. I think it was told to me that that wasn't so true, but all the way through my career, I found that people are looking for good writers. Yeah. It turns out that you need good writers to have clear communication, That that a good writer, a strong writer isn't someone who only speaks at the highest levels with like only the longest words a strong writer can communicate clearly at any level and it takes a strong writer to interpret challenging complex scientific ideas to the lay person yeah i mean i often think of myself especially in my job as a kind of translator mm-hmm. that you have to be able to understand complex information, but you have to be able to convey it in a way that people can understand if they're not an expert. And I think that that's a really important function, kind of like not fully understood how incredibly important that is in our world mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, at Hopkins, I was still doing writing and mm-hmm. fiction. And that's how, and I did a independent study and it was in that independent study with my advisor at the time, Stephen Dixon. He's, he was like also an incredible writer in his own right. He just passed away recently. Mm. Um, but also I had, um, I think a TA that I was working with and I was working on this novel then. <laughs> it's amazing. And we talked about it on your first visit because you came back like the prophetess was a manuscript you continued to return to, but wasn't something you worked on daily for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So 
your career gets going, you're writing it, you have responsibilities at work for writing. Did you have personal writing projects of your own? Or did, you know, work and family life squeeze that out for a time? Or or have you just, you've always been a writer? You know, at some point, there was this ad, I think it was maybe a Nike ad. And there was this woman who was running and she was talking about and you know it was advertisers for sneakers Mm -hmm. but she said like I do all kinds of exercise but basically I'm a runner Mm -hmm. and for some reason that commercial made such an impression on me because it it was like I do all kinds of you know communications but basically I'm a writer yeah (laughs) I think I found that everywhere you know it's been the common theme of my life you know in my career in nonprofit organizations i started an organization as you know that taught about what jewish tradition says about protecting the environment mm-hmm. and if you looked at the set of materials that were created as a result of that yeah all of that study on what jewish tradition says about the environment like it's all writing products right like i think that every place where i've been it's been me and words <laughs> Yeah, And so was I sometimes there were times when I was working actively on this novel. And then there were times when I was frustrated that I wasn't getting to work on the novel. And then there were times mm-hmm. when I was writing like a uplifting people and planet is this book that I co-edited with Rabbi Yonatan Narrell, a series of like 18 essential lessons on Judaism and the environment, which is available as an ebook on Amazon. It was later, it was collected into a book and it mm-hmm. being used as a book. And so like there were times when all my all my writing energy was focused on like helping other people write and edit things mm-hmm. that were very important to me um, in regards to the environment. And that was consuming all of my writing energy. But the profitus was always something that I was like continually coming back to. It wasn't something that I could stop. It was a story that needed to be told. When you're in the zone, when the deadline has spoken to you and you get in the zone, what does it look like for you? Are you like put one song on repeat while you write? Do you need total silence? Do you light a candle? Do you lock the door? Like, I guess what I'm asking is, what do you need from your physical environment to stay locked in on the word? Yeah, it's a great question. So I have I listen to instrumental movie scores. Okay, yeah. Uh, there's like a channel for that on Spotify, like cinematic chill out. That's what it's called. Uh-huh. That's a good one. Before I had Spotify, there were a few others that were like cinematic ambiance, that kind of thing. Sometimes if it's like a there, there are there are even ones where you could listen to like the climax kind of music, like the really exciting, like save the world right. kind of cinematic. Like, it's the music that you always think, well, I don't know about other people. I'm a musical person. It's music that, like, at the end of a movie, when the movie was good, and the credits are rolling, and they're playing this gorgeous music, and I don't really care about the credits, but I cannot turn off the music, because Mm -hmm. I can't turn off the credits, because the music is just so beautiful. It's that music. That's the music that I write to. I can't listen to something that has words, but I also can't be in silence that's like too much noise in my head when there's silence and definitely the other thing is the closing the door that's really Mm -hmm. important even if nobody else is in the house I just need like a smaller space 
Yeah. I even made an Instagram reel about this. The truth is that like, that is one way that I write, but the other way that I write is like 20 minutes on the Metro. Like Uh (laughs) I'm on like, I'm on the Metro and I've got like 20 minutes between this stop and that stop. And I know I got to get something done before like I reach my stop Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I have to focus and there's like, there's not anything else around. And I put away my phone and pull out a notebook and just force myself to focus on whatever I've written or I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how much I actually get written or at least get started because I started Mm -hmm. it on the metro yeah I totally get that probably 20 years ago I used to work in an ice cream parlor and my coworker Alvern and I were both taking writing classes at the time he was sitting at Columbia in Chicago he now has got a number of scripts that pilots that have been bought and comic books he's he has gone on to become a professional paid Hollywood writer but we would close the ice cream parlor at 11 So at like midnight, we would go to a diner together with our notebooks to like eat omelets in the middle of the night and and write together quite, you know, like in public. But like we needed that midnight, you know, late night diner chaos around us. Right. Like, I don't think either of us had laptops at the time, you know, because there was no taking our laptops with us. Like we were taking notebooks out and writing in public. Right. That makes total sense to me. Yeah. And the music. You know, I saw The Creator this weekend, which is a very, I still don't, I need to read some reviews about it because I don't know like how I, it's rare that a movie ends and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this movie Hmm. because it's about sentient AI and how the people have made the world's greatest weapon and it is a sentient AI that is a a six-year-old girl. Hmm. and. This American soldier has to go destroy the weapon, but they don't know it's a child. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, he can't kill the child because it is a child. And America is very much the bad guy in the movie. America is eradicating AI. Asian countries are building AI and living in peace with or trying to live in peace with AI. And it's a global war. And it's very I went with a friend who is also Jewish and we left saying how would we have felt about that movie if we had seen it on October 6th? Hmm. It's really intense. Hmm. But we're watching the credits and then up pops the credit that the music was by Hans Zimmer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that explains it. Right. Like, it was such a beautiful score and so familiar, but not, I didn't know any of it, but it was familiar and it was beautiful. And I was like, of course it was Hans Zimmer, like one of our great modern composers of instrumental soundtracks. Yeah. I mean, I really, I think about this sometimes about how, like, where did classical music go? Because classical music used to be like this, such a high art. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not like the art went away. It's just that like that art is, seems to mostly be used in service of movie scores now. In the same way that I think poems have mostly, I mean, see, people are still writing poems, of course, but much of poetry has found its way into children's books and like really good. I mean, when I was reading my kids, like children's books with poems, like there were some gorgeous poems and they have found this kind of home in children's books. And I know Mm -hmm. people are still writing classical music and still writing poems separately, but somehow like, I feel like those arts 
they've been put in service of other things, but like you can still find them and really enjoy them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I worked with, when I did social media coaching, my very first client was a classical musician who did soundtracks, but you're right. It is a lot of that in the, like, if you're going to make a living as a, even as a classical musician, not a composer, some of that's going to happen. Like in those sessions, you know, being a session musician or a studio musician. Yeah. So anyway, I think that those soundtracks are underappreciated and I'm super mm-hmm. glad that Spotify makes them available to me to just listen to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In high school, I had the tape for the piano and I just listened to that constantly because mm. that was dramatic and just almost just piano music. Yeah. I think. I don't know. I haven't listened to it in years. So you do longhand on the Metro and computer in your office, I assume? Yeah. As much as possible, I type. I mean, I Mm -hmm. can't really functionally do that on the Metro, but as much as possible, I type. It's just a lot faster. Yeah. And I I mean, if you're like, Leah, enough, too nitty gritty. But then are you, when you're editing a project, are you saving new versions? Are you doing track changes? Are you printing and editing on a printout and then typing it in and saving a new version? Because you said you love to revise. Yeah. So what is what is like the practical, what's the talk list of your revision look like? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's kind of um, it's sort of messy. I think mostly I am just writing over what I already wrote mm-hmm. and not tracking unless there's some reason that I have to show it to someone else. Because yeah. mostly when I'm revising, I am fixing something that doesn't feel right. And mm-hmm. so like sound right or it just doesn't feel like it's clear enough and so as I'm fixing it I'm just making it better and there would be no need to save what was there before okay but I do like if I'm doing a really major revision I sometimes save an extra copy and something that I often do is like when I'm working on something like if I remove like a couple of paragraphs I'll kind of put them at the end or I'll like save them into a notepad or something just so that I Mm -hmm. have them in you make like I, a little purgatory at the end of extra, yeah. extra paragraphs. Well, I mean, the truth is like, I'm working on an article right now. And like the thing that was kind of like a, this ending isn't working ended up being the beginning. Mm. And so I actually did realize that like, oh, like that actually could be really useful. <laughs> Just not right. where I thought it went. And so it's, it's true that like, I keep like a kind of, a little reserve of, you know, things that I worked on, but they're just not working where they are because yeah. sometimes I think so, sometimes editing really is like a jigsaw puzzle. Like there's like all these pieces and like, I kind of feel like they fit. I know they're all, they all belong in there or at least most of them do, but mm-hmm. I have to kind of figure out how they fit together. And sometimes a piece that feels like it didn't fit, like it's just that it didn't fit where it was and it needs to go somewhere else. Yeah. What haven't I asked you about writing? that you wanted to make sure that you shared that you love about writing? I think it's like I said before, that really writing is communicating. And and there's lots of different kinds of ways to communicate. Mm-hmm. And writing is this way of like educating, informing, touching people's hearts through words. And for me, that's very special. It's special that human beings can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like a gift that we have as human beings. We can actually really change the way someone thinks about something 
by writing it in a meaningful way. And it's actually a kind of dangerous gift these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the way that people tend to, um, you know, there's like sharing of misinformation happens that same way. But it's a kind of a holy thing to actually be able to understand like your own personal truth and be able to convey it to people in a way that helps them understand their personal truth. And I think that the more that we can use writing for that, the more that we can bring peace into this world. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to me right now. Amen. Yeah. It's also one of the, I think, wonderful Jewish aspects of writing is also how we stay in conversation with like ancient rabbis. It's so true. Right? Like through the Talmud, it's not done being written. And when we study it, it's these conversations, these layered over centuries, and we can continue the conversation. And it's only because we've written these arguments down and maintained a shared language in which to do that. Yeah. And I think like, you know, we say things like, I mean, it's in um, Ecclesiastes, like there's nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's true. I think that wisdom evolves. And that like, maybe I hope that human beings evolve. <laughs> I yeah. hope that that can happen. But I think that like our understanding of things evolves. And I mean, I've done some studying of Jewish mysticism, and I really believe that, that like some of the things that we're meant to know are still coming to us, are still being kind of opened up for us. And like, you can see that even technologically, that like all these new tools that didn't exist before are showing up in different ways. But I think that like wisdom also, not just technological wisdom, but like kind of heart knowing and people knowing and dare I say God knowing are things that are still, there's still more for us to learn and understand about each other and about life. And I think that we have that opportunity to learn that and to share that with each other. And I think that now is a good time for that. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. So where where can people find you online? It's always such a weird transition, but how can people find you and find the paperback of The Prophetess? I am at com, And I also have a sub stack where I've been sharing and have really had a lot of fun, like sharing, you know, some of my process and some of my kind of less publishable, but more intimate thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that's com, easily findable. I'm on Instagram as Heroin Whisperer. And uh, I also have a Facebook page with that same handle. And my book is on Amazon, Prophetess by Yvonne Marzu. Of course, you could find it by going to my website, but it should be easily searchable on Amazon. And you'll see there that there's a Kindle that's available now, and there's a hardcover that's available now, and the paperback is coming out on November 14th. And we set it up for November 14th, so it would be a great time for you to buy Hanukkah presents. Mm -hmm. And like we said, there will be a, a terrible donation made for every book bought by November 14th. So I really appreciate your support. Wonderful. Well, Yvonne, thank you so much for joining me and coming back on Finding Favorites. Maybe the next time it'll be in person. Oh, that would be lovely. That, that would, would be, be lovely. great. Maybe, another time, maybe the next time I'll have another book. Yeah. <laughs> we'll Keep them coming. It's so, so lovely to talk to you always. Thank you for listening to Finding Favorites with Leah Jones. Please make sure to subscribe and drop us a five-star review on iTunes. Now, go out and enjoy your favorite things.